You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. What's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris White. Thank you for downloading the show. If you have any questions for me, you can go to the website, nowheretorunradio.com. I'm going to skip the show notes and do those toward the end of the show. If you're interested, you can stick around for that. What I'm going to do is talk about two different things. The first is part of a series I want to start about frequently asked questions. And that's basically just what it sounds like. I get a lot of the same questions, and I thought a good way to minimize the time I spend during emails is to make an extensive audio frequently asked questions section of the website. So I thought I would just take a few here and there and record them as part of the Nowhere to Run podcast and then just make a section of the website with edits of that particular um, uh, question or answer to that question. So I'm going to start off today with one that I get quite a lot about the synagogue of Satan in the book of Revelation, specifically chapters 2 and 3. It's a phrase that appears twice, and I'll discuss that in depth. It's something that a whole lot of um, nonsense is said about, so I hope to clear some of that up. The second section will be some uh, some lessons that I learned the last week while moving, and I hope it's beneficial to you all. So let's just get started. So this phrase, the synagogue of Satan, the Greek phrase appears only twice in the Bible, both in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 and chapter 3 in the context of the so-called seven letters to the seven churches. I need to discuss briefly before we get into what this phrase means, um, what the seven letters are. The seven letters appear in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, And they often appear in red, if you have a red-letter version of the Bible, that is to denote the words of Jesus Christ. This is kind of an odd place to find the words of Jesus Christ because it's in the book of Revelation, um, decades after Jesus' three-year ministry uh, on earth occurred. The reason they're in red is because they are part of a dictation from the risen and glorified Lord to John, the apostle who wrote the book of Revelation. And they are addressed to seven particular churches in Asia Minor, churches like Smyrna, Thyatira, uh, Philadelphia, all, all actual cities in Asia Minor. And they are very specific, as we'll get into, but they also have application to us today. And it's important to know when they're applying to us and when they are applying to that church. I think it's actually quite obvious, as we will see once we get into it. Um, One of the things I want to discuss somewhat at length, and I hope it's not too tedious, but I do think it's important to uh, understand, if we're going to understand what this phrase, the synagogue of Satan, is, is the pattern in the seven letters. There is a very meticulous pattern that occurs in each one of these letters. Um, Basically, these are letters saying, hey, you guys in Smyrna, for example, did some things right and some things wrong. So the Lord is sort of saying, you know, you're doing good in this way, but you're doing really bad in this way. It's sort of a, a correction and rebuke to these actual churches in Asia Minor. Um, but the pattern is interesting and notable. So let me give you some examples of this pattern. First, I want to say in chapter 1, 
this is when John is is called to heaven and he sees the risen and glorified Jesus Christ. Um, it says um, that, let's see, for example, I turned to see the voice that spake with me and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about with paps with a golden girdle. His head and his, and his hairs were white like wool, and white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice was the sound of many waters." And he had on his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was... So it goes on. Clearly, this is a rich description of the risen and glorified Jesus Christ. And what the pattern in these seven letters is, or one of the patterns, is, for example, the very beginning of each of the letters describes some aspect that we just read in chapter one. That is, he he sees Jesus, and then he is... Uh, going to refer to one of the many aspects uh, as a beginning to each of the letters. So, for example, to the church of Ephesus, it says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So the very first of the letter describes one or two of many of the aspects in chapter one of the description of Jesus Christ. Another example, let's see, in um, in verse 8, the letter to the church of Smyrna. It says, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Another so two phrases that appear in chapter 1. Uh, again, to Pergamos, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. And it follows this pattern for each of the seven letters. Again, I'm going to describe some of these patterns so you can really understand the meticulous nature of each of these letters and how they could be basically outlined. Each one has a very specific pattern that it follows. They're not just random uh, in their construction. So another aspect of the pattern appears at the end of each of the seven letters. So again, we have seven letters. Each one has a beginning, middle, and ending. The ending of each of those letters also fo follows a particular pattern. It is uh, the ending can be called the the message to the overcomer. And one of the interesting things about the ending of each of these letters is that it is not addressed to the specific church. I mean, it starts off, this is to Sardis, this is to Pergamos, this is to Ephesus. But the end of each letter seems to be addressed to all churches for all time, or perhaps more specifically, those churches that will see the events take place in the rest of this very interesting book, the book of Revelation. So the end of each letter seems to be addressed in a much broader sense to the overcomer and to the churches in general. And they follow another pattern. So I'm going to read a few of these. This one to Ephesus ends this way. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will eat to, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the par the, the, the the pattern is that it starts off usually with this phrase, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So it's got a, a literary beginning. Uh, and in a pattern that it follows. But what it does is it tells that if a person overcomes what is about to occur, 
then they will be given eternal life. And the interesting thing is that how it describes that reward, which is eternal life, is is a different aspect, a different biblical aspect that is equal to eternal life. In this case, to Ephesus, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Um, let me read another one from Thyatira so you can get more resolution here. It says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This, These two things here, the book of life and confessing him before his father and the angels are different biblical aspects that are references to eternal life, rightness before God, and so on and so forth. Now, this can be a little tricky when one thinks, okay, wait, so our salvation is dependent upon our overcoming something. And I want to discuss that as a side note really briefly because I think this is important. I think that this is specifically addressed to those that will see the events he's about to describe in this vision, particularly the persecution of Antichrist. Um, I would definitely fall into the once saved, always saved camp. That is, you can't sin your way out of the new covenant. It is impossible. The new covenant can't work if it is uh, reliant upon um, your works. However, there is an aspect in which one can um, can ask to be out of the covenant through apostasy. Uh, we throw this word apostasy around quite a lot these days, but what it actually means is a person who knowingly and and turns from Jesus Christ, usually in the context of saving their lives. They're given a choice to either save their lives uh, or reject Christ. It's notable that in all major persecutions of human history since uh, since Jesus Christ, a person has been given the opportunity to avoid persecution, or rather to avoid uh, execution, if they would simply deny Christ. It's a sort of a weird thing that, you know, it doesn't seem logical for Hitler and, uh, you know, uh, all these, like uh, like Mao and all these people, Stalin and and all down to the Roman emperors and even the Catholic Church and its persecutions and even in the, the early persecutions of the Jews, it all would just go away if they would simply deny Christ. So apostasy was a knowing rejection of Jesus Christ for their uh, lives. And there are many places in the Bible when it speaks of these this particular time period, that is the time period of Antichrist, when it says that this is going to be the challenge the, 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 that we are going to face. That is that we are going to be given the opportunity to either save our lives um, or die, uh, and the saving our lives part will come if we deny Christ. So what I'm trying to tell you here is that this last part, I believe, is a reference to those that will see the persecution and trials of Antichrist, He, the Antichrist who will specifically um, uh, do this, that will give people the option to either worship him or die. And so this is kind of for those people that will see that persecution of Antichrist, which will occur. And basically that persecution constitutes the first six seals before the wrath of God begins. That is to say that no uh, true Christian will actually go through the wrath of God, but they will in fact see the persecution of Antichrist. Uh, you may hear some nailing. That's uh, my wife as we uh, get settled in with this uh, new house. So, um, okay, so we will just jump right in here after we've noted that there is a, a definite pattern. But the 
the part we're going to focus in and the reason I mentioned that there's a pattern is because of the middle section. Okay, we've seen we've seen the beginning pattern and the end pattern and that it's very definite and defined. But what we haven't seen is the middle. The middle is specifically for that first century church that it's addressed to in Asia Minor. And it contains things that we're going to go through and I want you to note that these things are unambiguously can can only be related to this first century church they, and it often has to do with uh, the very various trials that they are going through specific trials and I'm going to read through some of these just so you can get a sense of how clearly this middle section of each of the seven letters is just to them now I'm not saying we can't glean information from it and understand things about it but it's also very clearly for them so let's start with the church of Ephesus. It says to them, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst bear them which are evil and how thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. Okay, so at first he says to this, um, this church in Ephesus that there were people that were claiming to be apostles, but they successfully um, didn't bear them and found them to be liars. This is actually really interesting as it ties into Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 is when Paul the Apostle gathers together the elders of this very church, the church of Ephesus. He gathers them together at a seaport right as he's about to sail toward Jerusalem. And he says to them mainly and almost primarily warning them about this very thing, that there will be more, that there will come grievous wolves after he departs that will try to uh, gather people unto themselves and try to, uh, to, to essentially teach false doctrine. And Paul is warning them about these people that are going to come to this church of Ephesus. And so here in Revelation chapter 2 in this seven letters to the churches, some many, many decades later, we find... Uh, from the testimony of Jesus Christ himself, that they heeded Paul's warning and successfully avoided those grievous wolves that did come in. So that's one of the things that uh, that the Lord commends them for. Good job on that, guys. You did that well. Now, he does ha have some other things against them, but they aren't doing very good. Um, but then he has another good thing to say to them as well. It says, but, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay, so this is one of those places where we can see this is specifically to this first century church. The Nicolaitans, we don't really know much about them. Um, there isn't a lot of information even in the Bible about them. We don't really know much about their doctrine or anything else. All we know is that they probably, uh, it was like a cult or something started by this guy named Nicolaitis, probably. So they called themselves Nicolaitans and they were they were very serious about trying to get into the church and get people to follow their doctrine. And we know that Jesus really didn't like that doctrine. Uh, it's also mentioned in the letter to the church of Pergamos. So we know that the Nicolaitans were somewhat widespread and they were very interested in getting their doctrine into the faithful churches. It says in that letter, the following, it says, um, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. 
So again, in addition to the other doctrines, they also have their Nicolaitans whose doctrines he, he hates. So we know that they have, they're in Pergamos as well, and we know that the Lord doesn't like that doctrine whatsoever. So we're not told a whole lot about them, but we do know that it doesn't necessarily apply to us. If it was really important what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans were, we would know more about it. It's kind of like the heresy of the Colossians. Many theologians, you know, wax theological about what exactly was the uh, the heresy of the Colossians. And we get little bits and pieces here and there. But, you know, ultimately, if it was really important to know every detail about what the Colossian heresy was, then we would know it. And it's obviously not important that we know exactly what the Nicolaitan doctrine was. Um, but we do know that that this was something that they needed to hear. These letters probably caused quite a stir to those churches. Here, the Lord is calling out the Nicolaitans spe specifically and saying, I hate their doctrine. I bet that that changed the minds of quite a few people. I'm often, uh, you know, I often think about the, the crazy doctrines that must have been there at the first century. You know, right now we have a lot of we understand stuff like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, and we know what they believe and, and all that stuff. But early on, it must have just been this wild cult of personality thing. Any Anybody that Satan could find that had, you know, some good speaking ability or, or whatever that, that would sort of do his will unknowingly or knowingly, he could get to promote these false doc doctrines and draw people to himself. we got to remember that Satan is, is very good at doing that. It's like his... He, he is really good at false teachings, and, and that's one of his primary goals. And most of the New Testament in regard to talking to elders and stuff is trying to warn them to, to, to deal with these things and to, and to refute them. So anyway, we see more of this kind of thing in the letter to Thyatira. In this case, it's to a woman, Jezebel, who was calling herself a prophetess and teaching people... Uh, some kind of doctrine that involved committing fornication and eating things sacrificed to idols. I know this is hard for us to sort of contextualize because we don't see things like prostitution and eating food sacrificed to idols as anything to do with religious worship. But in the first century, it was a very seriously ingrained idea that you, first of all, eating food sacrificed to idols was a very important part of religious worship. You sacrificed uh, something to idols, and then you ate it. And then another thing was temple prostitutes. Think about Ephesus, for example. It was like the 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 very center of temple prostitution. The 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 temple to Diana and all that was there, which was the the Herodolies and everything was were temple prostitutes, and it was a very important part of uh, of worship. So you can imagine that there were doctrines out there that were trying to incorporate those pagan ideas that were very widespread that people didn't want to get rid of um, and just wanted to sort of have that and, you know, give lip service to Christianity and so on. So I think that's what's going on with a lot of these things like uh, the Jezebel um, false teaching. But I'm going to read, read this one here about the Church of Thyatira and Jezebel. And I want you to realize that this is talking about a specific woman in the first century that was doing specific teachings and causing people to do these things. Okay. So it says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest the, that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornications and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. It then follows that up, uh, after saying that, you know, if they do repent, um, that it would be okay. But uh, he in verse 24, it says, 
But unto you, I say, and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and, ha and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden. So, he, this is interesting that he follows this up by calling the depths of Satan, knowing the depths of Satan, which may have been a phrase that they used to describe this somehow, which is really weird. But nevertheless, he's referring to the things that Jezebel was getting them to do, namely commit fornication and eating food sacrificed to idols. That was referred to allegorically as the depth of Satan. I mentioned this aspect of this is sort of a different aspect um, that the allegorical use of the devil and Satan here is really important. Uh, in this case, knowing the depths of Satan didn't have anything to do with um, knowing the ancient cherub Satan in an intimate way. It's used as an allegorical thing to describe the the badness of the things that she was teaching them to do. It was a very pagan thing that they were doing. Another kind of way to, to show this is in the letter to Smyrna, when it says, fear not, uh, fear none of those which shall thou suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Here again, and I don't think this is an accident, all these times that we're going to see the use of Satan in an allegorical way to refer to the many different variations of, of bad things that were happening to the Christians uh, in the seven letters. Now, Satan or the devil wasn't throwing people into prison, I don't think. I don't think the ancient cherub was coming out and, and actually grabbing people and throwing them into prison. But they were being thrown into prison, uh, in, in this case, by our culprits here, the those of the synagogue of Satan. So the devil was throwing people into prison. Another uh, example of the allegorical use of uh, of Satan is found in the letter to Pergamos. This is... Um, and I, all this is going to, I'm trying to, going to try to tie all this together. I know it's kind of all over the place. In Pergamos, it says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Okay, a few things here. First of all, we're bolstering our point here in the mention of this guy named Antipas, who was martyred in Pergamos, okay? Uh, so so here we have something that applies to the first century church. Now, we don't know who Antipas is. We have no, no re reference to him anywhere else in the Bible. But this goes to show you that this was something that they needed to hear. They knew about Antipas. It was, it was, it was something they were worried about. And this is comfort to them. This is something that that church at that time needed to hear. So the midsection of these letters is very, very, very specific um, to the, these people, whether it's talking about a prophetess coming in who's been doing this or the Nicolaitans or those that hold to the doctrine of Balaam uh, that are causing people to commit fornications and so on and so forth. These are specific things. But and what I, the other part of this is this idea of where Satan's seat is. Now, I'm sure in the Christian community, Christian conspiracy community, somebody's probably going to write a book or something uh, about how Satan lives in Pergamos because of this. And, you know, whatever. Maybe there's some something going on there. It, it again mentions that later on in this verse, uh, Antipas, my faithful martyr, was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Okay, so is this biblical proof that Satan lives in Pergamos in, ancient, in, in Asia Minor? Well, I'm not going to say that he doesn't, but I can tell you that the context of what's being said here uh, is is not trying to 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 say that. It's saying that I know your works and where thou dwellest. So something about where they dwell 
even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and has not denied my faith. Okay, even in those days when Antipas, my faithful martyr, was slain among you, where Satan dwells. So he's saying that you guys live in a place that is very, very bad. And we're going to discuss uh, Pergamos here. In a, uh, Pergama, I guess is what it's called. The 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 city was the actual seat of, of Asia Minor. It was sort of the capital. Uh, and it was a really bad place. It was so much, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of bad stuff that we're going to discuss in a minute was happening there. But his point is, is that they were doing good. They were holding fast to his name, even there in Pergamos. And, and th that they didn't deny his faith, faith, didn't deny their faith, even when they saw one of their friends killed. That's clearly the, 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 the idea here. Now, the idea of Satan's seat, I'm going to suggest that it's a, it's a, in a sense, referring to a few possibilities. First of all, is that this area was, as I mentioned, it was sort of the capital. It had this 10,000 seat auditorium, just unprecedented auditorium there, which a lot of brainwashing was going on as far as I understand it. Uh, but it was, it was um, a place where they actually began uh, the practice of worshiping um, uh, kings. The Caesars later took it from um, from this area and ba basically incorporated it into what they were doing. In fact, in order to 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 uh, buy and sell at the marketplace, there was a requirement to throw a pinch of incense to the king or whatnot. So that's all of that. You know, obviously that's a possible connection to the idea of one cannot buy or sell unless they have the mark of the beast and essentially worship the beast by getting that mark. But like, for example, this was just a, a place where these 10,000 seat auditorium would be, they would all be, you know, it was free wine. It was dedicated to Dionysus. So there would be like 10,000 seat orgies going on. And, you know, that just doesn't, 10,000 people just don't get together in isolation like that. It's going to be indicative of the nature of that city. Um, the city was a capital. It was a bad place. It had a lot of, you know, bad things going on there. And that I think is what the referent is here. And, and I can say that with confidence based on the reason he says that is that even in that situation, you've been holding fast to my name and have not denied my faith. That doesn't make sense. If his point was to say that Satan lives underground, uh, you know, in, in Pergama, then it doesn't really make any sense there. So all that to say two things again, that, Satan, as we're because it's going to be relevant to the verse that we're going to look at, it here is used allegorically at least a number of times. He's throwing people into prison. Um, he, knowing the depths of Satan was a re referent to holding to the doctrine of Jezebel of of committing fornication and even things of idol idols. And Satan's seat is being referred to here as um, uh, a place of you know incredible debauchery and so on and so forth, and also false worship and st so on. Now. Knowing all that we just found out, let's read the verses in question. This is written to the church in Smyrna, which will be important as we progress. It says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Now, there are several things that people, commentators, will do with this 
uh, phrase, thou, the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews and are not. There are basically two ways you can take this. One is that they really were Jews, that is ethnically descended from Abraham, but not uh, following Yahweh. Um, and the way that you followed Yahweh at this point was through Christ. Paul makes the point that we are uh, the seeds of Abraham, yeah, the spiritual seeds of Abraham. This is not replacement theology. I think you can take this too far and say that Jews are no longer Jews uh, and that we have taken over all the promises of the Jews. I don't think that. But there is a sense in which we are now the descendants of Abraham. So a lot of commentators will make that point that though they say they are Jews, they are not Jews. Um, but one thing that I would say is that it doesn't really matter even if you take the point that maybe this particular group of people in Smyrna were not really actually descendants of Abraham, but they were, uh, you know, people that were calling themselves Jews, but weren't. They were still doing, excuse me, what the Jews in the first century were doing. You have to, that is persecuting Christians because they were saying things that they didn't think were doctrinally correct. That is that God became a man uh, died for our sins, etc. That that was the reason the Jews were uh, killing Christians, is they thought it was they they thought it was righteous indignation. And I I've got a proof text for that here in the next reference to the synagogue of Satan that I can uh, prove that to you. I think, but the but the thing I will say is that it's important to know that this was the world in the first century. The early church was persecuted by the Jews. Um, it was only later uh, in the second century and following. Uh, that the, the church was really uh, persecuted by the Romans, and that persecution really stayed with them for a long, long time. The Romans also persecuted the Jews, but but think, for example, in uh, in Jerusalem, even in the context of the Book of Acts, everybody had to leave Jerusalem. It was so hot in Jerusalem, so dangerous to be a Christian in Jerusalem uh, during the Book of Acts that everybody had to leave. Paul often speaks of lying, the, the Jews lying in wait for him. I mean, if you've ever read the book of Acts, they are clearly the ones that are killing Christians. Paul uh, himself, of course, was on a mission to kill all Christians and had the support of the Jewish community to go and uh, and do so. So they this is historically accurate first century stuff in Smyrna. And we've got proof text for that as far as uh, actual historical accounts and stuff that we'll get into later. So what I'm trying to say is that um, here in this verse, what, what are these people doing? Well, they're throwing them into, into prison. They're causing them to suffer. They're trying them. They're giving them tribulation. And he's warning, he's encouraging them to be faithful unto death because of the persecution of these people. Um, now, in the next referent, reference to these guys, which is in uh, the Church of Philadelphia, uh, it says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. That's a reference to Isaiah, I think. Um, but nevertheless, my point is at the last part, I will cause them to know that I have loved thee, that I have loved Christians. Now this gives uh, should give you an understanding about the motivation for the so-called synagogue of Satan. They were killing Christians because they didn't believe that God loved them. They didn't believe that their message was true. So Jesus's answer to them will be to show them that he loves Christians. Do you see that, that we are told whether these people are 
really Jews or not, their motivation is the same motivation that caused all the Christians to have to leave Jerusalem, or the same motivation that caused Paul to want to go to uh, uh, kill all the, the Christians that he could find. That is righteous indignation. Now, I could go through a lot of verses that would say things like, um, like in the Old Testament, it says, look, you guys think that you're a Jew because you've been circumcised, but you're not a Jew until you've been circumcised of your heart. And we could find a lot of references that says people are not Jews unless their hearts are circumcised. The Lord makes the point on several occasions to the Jews that if they really were descendants of Abraham, if, in the spiritual sense, clearly he means, then they would love him too. This is a spiritual, not an ethnic decision. That if you really loved him and listened to him, you would also love Jesus. But you don't love me, therefore you don't love him. And so the point is, and, and that's when Jesus says, you know, you're not, you, your father is Satan. Not, and now, now what we have done with this, this kind of goes into a totally different uh, false teaching called the serpent seed, which is taught by very bad, either bad Bible teachers or or knowing false prophets, because it takes a concerted effort to teach somebody the serpent seed doctrine. And maybe that's a episode for another time. But it really relies on the the book, uh, The 13th Tribe by Arthur Kessler, about the Khazarian theory that um, um, that uh, these Khazars in, uh, uh, were actually, dis they converted to Judaism. They were kind of a Eastern European sort of Mongolish kind of tribe that converted to Ju Judaism and then migrated to Germany. And they uh, grew there and became the... Jews that we know today, and so people will say, hey, the people that we're calling Jews today aren't really Jews, they are converts from Khazaria, therefore, we don't have to like them, in fact, Jesus hated them, and it's okay to hate them, and so on. Now, I did a video about that uh, called The Myth of the Thirteenth Tribe, uh, Arthur Kessler Debunked, or something like that, which you can find on YouTube, which debunks that thoroughly in many different ways, uh, one of which being in a genetic way. That is to say that you can prove where the, uh, spe specifically through the Kohanim uh, bloodline, that is the priest class in Judaism, has remained almost uncorrupted um, because they have very specific uh, rules in regard to the Kohens or the priest class intermarrying. And so they have very pristine Y chromosomes, which are passed from father to son. And those Y chromosomes can be traced back um, to the very area, um, and in fact, to the time of uh, Moses, and so on and so forth, and back to Abraham. And I think I go through that in great detail, and all the different references and stuff are in that video. But there's other ways that we can determine that the Khazar theory of Arthur Kessler doesn't hold water, and there isn't any belief that it does among people uh, that are in the know about that. It just exists in the conspiracy uh, world. And I mean, I know that 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 is good for some things, and but for other things, it doesn't. And this is one of those, and I think I make a good case in that. So without that, without that additional thing, there's no need to wonder about this. Just from the Bible alone, we can tell that the synagogue of Satan was probably uh, the people that were not circumcised of their heart, uh, but were persecuting 
the Christians in the same way that the Jews of the early first century, who nobody denies are Jews, you know, in Jerusalem, Paul was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin and so on and so forth, but he was persecuting Christians, yet he was a Jew. So, so it's not that all Jews don't persecute Christians. In fact, the Bible says specifically that the Jews were persecuting Christians. So all that to say that it doesn't really matter if these this group was like some ragtag bunch of people who were pretending to be Jews just to persecute Christians. And maybe this is a literal saying they, they're lying, they aren't really Jews, but they're still doing what the Jews were doing. Do you see how it doesn't matter there? It's still It's still in this section, which is referring to a specific thing in that specific church at that specific time. And in relation to that, we have uh, some pretty good um, material from the so-called martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp and the martyrdom of Polycarp is one of the earliest church documents, extra-biblical church documents that we have. It's the earliest martyrdom that's recorded that we have. And Polycarp was actually a disciple of the Apostle John. Polycarp, excuse me, Polycarp was born around 69 AD, so well in the first century. This is probably somewhere around the time that Paul excuse me, John was writing the book of Revelation, maybe a little later. But but Polycarp was killed by the instigation of, uh, among other people, the Jews. They were actually, in that account, were very prominent instigators in getting him to be burned alive. So we know that this same faction, that is the Jewish persecution and extreme uh, hatred of Christians and the desire for them to be killed because of their view of it being blasphemy and so on and so forth was existent in Smyrna at this time that this was written. I mean, this is incredibly good evidence to say in Smyrna, there were persecution of Jews against uh, the Bishop of Smyrna, which is Polycarp. So all that to say that there is no reason to think that this synagogue Satan, synagogue of Satan is anything more than people in first century uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia, which like the Nicolaitans or the, uh, uh, the, the Jezebelites or the Balaamites or, or all these other things that were warned that were, he was warning those early churches was something that they were dealing with, which is noted uh, that they were actually being killed, persecuted by this group, uh, later on, it mentions that they will be vindicated and the Lord will show this group that he really does love them, which I would suggest shows that their motivation really was righteous indignation. So so we can see the reference to the synagogue of Satan in the same way that the Lord speaks of uh, Pergamos being the seat of Satan or the devil throwing people into prison or being intimate with Satan is is a reference to committing fornication with uh, with Jezebel and, and eating food sacrificed to idols. I, I don't think it's an accident that we see all those references to Satan in an allegorical sense in relation to all these uh, problems that are encroaching on this very early church in a, churches in Asia Minor. So, and of course, this requires, if you're going to believe what is usually believed when people are citing this, it re really relies on the serpent seed doctrine, and the serpent seed doctrine relies on Arthur Kessler's book, The Thirteenth Tribe. If you take the Thirteenth Tribe idea out of the equation, you don't have the serpent seed doctrine. Uh, so what I would encourage people to do, at least, at least the serpent seed doctrine in relation to these passages. So... What I would encourage people to do is go to my YouTube site or just go to YouTube and type in 
the myth of the 13th tribe, Arthur Kessler debunked or something like that. And the video will come up, which will describe in detail why the 13th tribe book and the idea that the Jews today aren't really Jews and it's okay to hate them um, is not true. And that's such a insidious little uh, false doctrine that encourages anti-Semitism uh, among well-meaning people. And I say it like that because it, it goes like this. Oh, you, you know, these people that are because they kind of incorporate all this sort of Jews running the world thing. And they say, oh, yeah, they're all bad. And they're all, you know, of the Illuminati and everything else. And it's OK to hate them because, by the way, they're not really Jews at all. Oh, yeah, we love Jews. Jews are great. But uh, these guys aren't really Jews at all. They're just converts from Kazaria. And I know this because I used to believe it because I used to believe David Icke. And that's what he told me. And uh, why would you question somebody that has a British accent? So anyways, um, that's a uh, that's sort of where. I am with this one. Anyway, if you want more information, please check out that video and uh, read our Bibles and read them in context. And I think the Bible does a pretty good job of explaining itself. All right. In the next section, I wanted to talk about a few different things that I learned in the last few weeks, uh, especially in relation to me moving. As I mentioned briefly earlier, we've moved to a new house. It's a little cabin that we are renting here in East Tennessee, and we're really excited about it. I felt like I uh, should move out here for a long time, so we decided to take a chance and see if there was anything uh, anything to it, and uh, we also hope that it will reduce our cost of living and some other benefits, but um, but all that to say that it's been kind of a stressful month. month. If anybody has moved recently, you know that it can be kind of a stressful situation, and you know there were logistics issues and all these other things, and one of the things that I learned was this concept that I'm going to call praying through. It's something I've talked about before, but kind of got a refresher course on it. And I think maybe some people out there might benefit from uh, from my learning experience. You know, in Nashville, it doesn't snow very much. In fact, it's only had one snowstorm this year. And that snowstorm occurred on the day that I was supposed to drive the U-Haul truck to uh, the mountains of East Tennessee. And I looked out my window on the day, we packed up the U-Haul the night before, so we'd just be ready to leave early morning. And I looked out the window, no, I mean, I'd been checking the weather for like two weeks straight to see what it was going to be that day. And, you know, praying for good weather the whole time because, we, you know, we had a lot of people who were supposed to help and all this stuff. And I was just really hoping for good weather. And so when I looked out the window that morning to see a complete full-on snowstorm, uh, you know, the, the roads packed with snow and everything. It was quite a shock. You know, here we have, it was almost like, is this a joke? I mean, this is the, this is the day that I've been praying for, you know, for good weather. And here we have the worst possible weather, um, uh, of all year. And so anyways, I, you know, get in the truck. I gotta, we gotta go anyway. And, uh, getting in the truck and I, I head off to where we're going and it's like snowageddon. I mean, there are ambulances and, 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 and police cars and fire trucks and everybody's sliding off the road. Nobody's making it up any of the hills. Uh, but before I found that out, I went, I went the wrong way. I went the complete wrong way, uh, to go the direction that I was going. Just, I don't know why, just sort of a, 
just just went the wrong way. But the way I went was a road that had not been traveled on. It was an exceedingly hilly road, big big climbs and 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 huge uh, drop offs. The the roads in we don't have salt trucks or anything in in Nashville, so you know the the roads are just completely covered in snow. And I'm the first person on these roads because it's really early in the morning, and. I'm going through this just gauntlet and I can't turn around now because I'm like, I, I, I've gone too far and it's just, I've got to just keep pressing through. So I go through this huge, this huge gauntlet of hills and, and, and I'm praying the whole time, you know, you know, for, for God to help me through this situation that I'm going down this hill in this massively uh, weighted truck and everything, and everything is going pretty smooth. And, and, um, I was really grateful. So I finally got going the right direction and I'm going towards, you know, the main intersections. And that's when I find it's snow again, that everybody is, is completely, um, messed up and, and off the side of the road. And, um, and to make a long story short, I get through all of it and, and everything is going really well. I mean, even on the interstates, I thought, well, once I get to the interstate, it'll be clear. But on the interstate, it was just, it was snow again all over the place. Overturned cars. I saw at least complete, two completely overturned cars. Uh, you know, just traffic jams everywhere and just a mess, just a total mess. But what the, the lesson that I wanted to, to, to point out here that I felt, felt like I learned in that instance were, were two things. First of all, me going the wrong direction the first time actually showed me that the truck was able to do it. Uh, I went, uh, the truck was, was, was a dually and it was, you know, weighted down with all the, with all the stuff. And I went in a far worse area than anything that I would have to deal with, uh, after that. And it gave me the confidence in the truck. It gave me, um, it gave me the needed confidence that I would need to go further because there was a section that I would not have gone up if I had not gone through that hard part because, uh, nobody was making it up this hill, but the hill was like nothing compared to what I'd just gone through. And I mean, big, you know, trucks were falling off, not the big trucks, but like, you know, uh, uh, other dually sort of pickup trucks were not making it up there and nobody was making it up this hill. And the people coming down the hill were sliding, but I had to get up the hill to get to the interstate. I had deadlines of people waiting for me and all this stuff was happening. But, um, so it gave me the confidence saying, look, I can get up this hill. I mean, I had no trouble with other ones, so I can get up this one. And sure enough, I'm like the only guy getting up the hill and like, you know, I'm making it past. Um, so two things. Number one, the, the idea that God gets us, uh, sometimes takes us the long way, which, which seems like a big mistake. I was like, oh man, why did I make this mistake and go this wrong way? And it could be one of two things. It could be, I really made the mistake, but God made the most of that mistake. Or it could be that God wanted me to to make that mistake so I could learn from it and do the other parts. I'm speaking more in a life way now uh, than trying to sort of figure out what the will of God is. Because I don't, that's another thing I want to talk about is trying to figure out the will of God. Was it his will for me to do it or not? And I think we can beat ourselves up so much about that. And I'll talk about that in a minute. That, um, so that was pretty cool. The other thing that I learned was this idea of praying through. Um, no, the, the weather wasn't, uh, at all what I was hoping for. It was the exact, exact opposite of what I was hoping for it. And I know this is sort of kind of like a silly kind of way uh, you're going, you're out there going through real trials and difficulties and stuff like that. Um, and my situation was not that big of a deal, but I think the principle applies when you get those things that you weren't expecting that seem like utter tragedies, um, you have two choices. You always have two choices. 
you can you can do as Job's wife told him to do, which was to curse God and die. And then you can go through the troubles with God in prayer, praying for the things that you need in it. Okay, so for example, you know, I've mentioned before, like, let's say you you're walking to work or whatever and a bus comes by and and splashes a puddle all over your clothes you can you can curse god why did you do that not not in a cursing god way necessarily outright but in your heart you know god is against me what did i do wrong and all this stuff and oh is this right god is this what it's going to be like oh is this what you give me you know all these kinds of options it comes to us every time in lots of different formats wherever you're at that kind of idea especially in big tragedies you know you had a parent or grandparent die in circumstances that were not fair or, and all and uh, people can go down that road so much the sort of anger at god and that's one choice that that you can go the other choice is to to pray through it so for example you know the puddle and the and the school bus thing you can begin to pray for the things that you need at that point. Lord, I pray that uh, you can get me, you know, to the place I can find a, a change of clothes or this that this could dry really quickly or all the things that you need in that moment. You know, help me to be comfortable as I try to get to a place of changed clothes or, or all the different things that you need in that moment. And I, I'm telling you that that's when he is closer than ever before. And I've mentioned this like that uh, silly footsteps poster that was real famous back in the day, you know, where there was two sets of footsteps, but then, uh, which were symbolic of you walking with the Lord, but then all of a sudden there was one footsteps and the person asks the Lord, where, where, was, uh, where were you during those hard times? There was only one set of footsteps. And the answer in those things is that it was during those times that I carried you. And we, we can uh, enter into that carrying uh, him carrying us if we don't go the other direction of the 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 mental rejection or cursing or anger that is always an option but to pray through to immediately change your outlook okay this is not what i planned this is not good this is not what i was hoping for but this is what i have i can't change the fact that this is where i'm at so the best thing that I can do is begin to pray through this time. You know, what do I need now? Well, now I need safety for me and all the people that are that are traveling with me. Now I need, I had a number of logistical things I won't get into, but I had a lot of things. And each one of those things that I prayed for and needed and received were opportunities for me to be thankful and uh, really gave glory to God. So, and I wouldn't have had those opportunities and I wouldn't have certainly grown any in my faith had I not had that, um, that opportunity. And I think that, you know, it is helpful to sometimes look at our trials like that word indicates. What if they really were trials? What if like the angels were looking at you with their notebooks out and seeing how you're going to deal with that person that drives you absolutely crazy every day at work or that uh, situation. What are you passing that test? Are the angels, what are they writing down in their notebooks? You know, what if it really was a trial? What if that difficult situation that you're in really was something that uh, was a possibility for you to not only grow, but, but grow really well. Uh, we just don't grow unless there's weight on the dumbbell and you don't have uh, you're not so I would just encourage people to look at things like that. The other thing 
in relation to that is um, God's will. And thinking about God's will can just just drive us nuts. I was talking to somebody recently who had a breakup, and they were convinced that this particular relationship was um, was of God. You know, I mean, they, everything seemed so great, and you know, they met him on Christian Mingle, and everything was just going so super super good. But it it didn't work out. And the, it didn't work out because the person I was talking to basically broke it off for kind of a silly reason. And, and, but they did it and, you know, there wasn't any turning back and everything else. And they were absolutely destroying themselves because they thought now I've, uh, you know, that was God's will for me to do that. And now I didn't do it. So I'm sort of outside of God's will now. And I've missed my opportunity and these kinds of things. Another, another sort of way that we can do that, uh, can be, these things about the things that might not really matter, you know, God, should I, is it your will that I get the red car or the blue car or that I take this job or that job? And, and we, we, we search so much for a sign, uh, for things that really are, are not, um, really are not, we don't need necessarily direction for. Now, let me, let me be straight about this. Is sometimes God will have a direct, uh, Thing that he wants you to do. And I think that that's accomplished mostly through uh, conviction. Um, and it's also through uh, seeking him in the word. But here's the issue is that God has given us a really specific um, direction about his will. He has given us his word and specific things that he wants us to do. You know, under the context of make disciples of all men, for example, is one thing that we know we have our marching orders. We know what we're supposed to do. And, you know, if you get the red car, or the blue car or take this job or that job, it might not matter. And here's the here's the bigger issue. Trying to think, well, I took this job, but maybe God wanted me to take that job. And maybe now I'm not in God's will. Or maybe it's because I wasn't doing things right and I was sinning in this way or that way and all these different things that we could just just wax theological about i would just say it's not for us to get too bogged down in that because listen god's will is kind of outside of our pay grade he's the alpha and the omega he sees the beginning from the end you know it goes back to that question i was talking about earlier was it god's will for me to take the wrong way initially so that i could learn that or did i just do that and he made the best of a bad situation you know in order to know the answer to that question i got to get inside the mind of God and know how all this intricate stuff intricately works. I I just think that that we get we get ourselves in trouble when we try to analyze God's ultimate will for all this stuff in every little situation. So I just want to encourage people we know what we're the macro stuff that we're supposed to do. And within that context, I don't think you can mess up too much if you are genuinely saved. And my reference to that is is Romans eight twenty eight and following. We know that all things work together for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And the next verse says that it's because it's for the conforming uh, us being conformed to the image of Christ. So, uh, you know, if we if we fail at something, you know, in in a worldly sense or something seems to be uh, in a bad way, let it be a glorious failure. Let it let, don't be afraid to fail, but just don't don't go the other direction with it. Go through the failure with God. Let let it have its uh, work in you. Let it let it work you to be conformed to his image. And I, and I would suggest that there isn't anything that's going to come uh, through your path that can't be used to the glory of God. And now we know, of course, there are certain 
things that, that, that this would exclude. I mean, obvious sinfulness and obvious sinful behavior and, and different things. It's certainly not God's will for that. And that's what we have the word for. Anybody that is a student of the word will know those basic sort of guidelines. But within that basic guideline, I don't think that you can thwart the ultimate plan of God. You can't, you can't mess it up. You can't mess God's plan for you up. Um, so I think we should just rest comfortably, let God be God, and we'll just deal with what comes up when it comes up and, and go through everything in prayer. Some really good Bible verses, one that I think is particularly appropriate to this is in Romans twelve twelve. It says, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. I love this because, you know, you're patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Tribulation is going to come. We're told point blank that by the Lord. You will have tribulation in this world. But he, but it says here, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Obviously in the context of that tribulation. Patient in tribulation, continu- continuing steadfastly in prayer. Uh, also in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for some things. No, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So there is uh, things here, the anxiousness. Don't be anxious, but uh, through prayer, tell God what you need in a thankful way, in an attitude of thankfulness. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So how do we get the peace of God? Well, we have to pray and uh, with thanksgiving and let our requests be made known unto God. So the way to get the peace of God is through prayer. It's such an important idea that we need to pray through uh, things. I've said it a, min- a million times, but I'll say it again. God doesn't always want to yank you out of the hard times. He wants to go through the hard times with you. He wants to be um, your father, your friend, uh, your provider. He is all of those things. And uh, and I think you'll find that if you are in a difficult time, in a, in a time with a lot of trials, you have, su- you, you have such an opportunity here to see how good God is. Um, and Luke 18 verse 1 says, Then he spoke a parable, parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And here, speaking of a parable in which the the woman uh, keeps uh, pestering the, the judge there and not losing heart for her persistence in that. So I don't think that we should give up in that, too. There's a certain attitude of persistence. I'll uh, close with a, uh, with a reading from Oswald Chambers in his excellent devotional, the My Utmost for His Highest. God is the Master Engineer. He allows difficulties to come in order to see if you can vault over them properly. By God, I have leaped over a wall. God will never shield you from any of the requirements of a son or daughter of his. Peter says, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. Rise to the occasion. Do the thing. It does not matter how it hurts, as long as it gives God the chance to manifest himself in your mortal flesh. May God not find the wine in us any more, but may he find us full of spiritual pluck and athleticism, ready to face anything he brings. We have to exercise ourselves in order that the Son of God may be manifested in our mortal flesh. God never has museums. The only aim of the life is that the Son of God may be manifested, and all dictation to God vanishes. 
Our Lord never dictated to his Father, and we are not here to dictate to God. We are here to submit to his will so that we may work through so he may work through us what he wants. When we realize this, he will make us broken bread and poured out wine to feed and nourish others. Okay, I'll, I'll finish all this up with a few show notes if you're interested. The first thing is the new book, uh, a book about sleep paralysis, is in the works. I decided to do that just before we moved, and I'm really excited about it. I decided to do it for a few reasons. The first is it's a, it's a vehicle for me to publish the, uh, the survey findings uh, that we did at sleepsurvey.org over the course of the last year. I think it's the best... Uh, way for me to actually get that survey in a reputable way out to as many people as would care. Secondly, there is a whole number of people that are, are suffering from sleep paralysis and are looking for answers that are not looking in the places that I am talking, that is in videos or podcasts. And so, and they're really basically only looking on places like Amazon and, and books on the issue. So I want to get there where they are and I think this is the best way to do it. The, I guess the third third reason is that I think it's a really fruitful thing. I've seen so much uh, fruit and some, so much good uh, come from the sleep paralysis ministry that uh, myself and Mike Tater have done. And, and uh, Mike is actually going to be involved with this book project as well. So uh, we're excited about it and we're excited about what uh, can be done with it. We do think that it's going to be a great, uh, a great thing for uh, helping people with sleep paralysis. The other things I wanted to mention, the Sabbath project as a result of the sleep paralysis kind of being in the forefront is going to be accelerated. I hope, a big hope, to have that out by the end of February, which would require quite a bit of uh, of stepping up my game with that. It may not be as uh, as intricate as I wanted it to be, but I will I will be trying to get it done by the end of February, if at all possible. All the podcasts are going to continue as planned. I want to continue to uh, to be updating them all. If you want to um, to hear them, I would suggest going to the Chris White Everything feed, which you can get at the main website or just find it on iTunes. It has all the different podcasts in one place. So I encourage you to, to do that. And I also am, am considering doing a more weekly study of the Bible in some format, as well as uh, considering a kind of debunkumentary contest. I am also hoping to get started on a verse-by-verse study of Revelation in video format as soon as possible. Uh, and as soon as possible means when I get done with the book of Daniel, which is also on a brief hiatus until I can get done with the Sabbath project. Anyways, I appreciate your prayers for these projects and for them to be fruitful. And I also appreciate your prayers for some uh, for the right jobs and everything here and uh, and our new place just to kind of um, send out a prayer or two for us there to, to get settled in properly and, and everything here. It would be really, really appreciated. And uh, thanks. Goodbye. Hey, everyone. Thanks a lot for listening. My name is Chris White. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to write. My email address is chris at chriswhiteministries.com. For those of you that are getting a lot out of these audios or videos, consider supporting the show in one of two ways. The first is financially through a donation. This is a full-time ministry, so believe me when I tell you it really does help keep the wheels turning over here. I literally couldn't do this without you. There's a PayPal button at virtually any one of my websites like chriswhiteministries.com. The second way that you can support the show is through a five-star rating and or comment on iTunes. 
iTunes considers that a very important part of their rating system, and it would really help me out a lot. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next time.